I have this sort of pet peeve around the way television shows and podcasts mark their seasons. For example, Survivor, the television show, has been out for 20 years, but somehow they're on season 40. I don't like that. All right, even that makes sense, right? But don't don't launch a podcast, have eight episodes, and tell me that was season one, and then come back two months later, do eight more episodes, say season two. I saw one the other day. It's not even two years old. They're like, we're in season six. I'm like, no, you're not. I mean, okay, but, you know, I don't know. It bothers me. Not a lot. Like I'm not, you know, not making picket signs about it or anything like that. It's just one of those things that when I see it, rubs the wrong way, chafes me a bit. That is why I'm very proud to tell you that today you are listening to the first episode of season six of the Juice Box podcast. This is episode 293. And I wanted to start out the sixth year of this podcast with a little bit of a mishmash. So I think the podcast is basically, you know, conversations with people or conversations between me and Jenny about management ideas. But what if we treated Jenny like a person and talked to her? So today, to start season six, I interview Jenny Smith. And in a real crazy, oh my, oh, I just got a little rude, you hear that there? In a real crazy twist, you are hearing this episode on the day it was recorded, which is never going to happen again this year, just so you know, probably. But for this one, it is. Before I get to thanking the sponsors, I want to thank you. Because of your support, because of all the downloads and streams and listens that this podcast gets, and the t-shirts and sweatshirts that you've purchased, all the stuff, all the ways that you support the podcast, I was able to upgrade some equipment. So I'm going to sound a little better, I hope. Um, I was able to replace an old computer that was on its last legs that actually crashed a couple of times this year while I was recording podcasts. Um, So there's new computer, same microphone, I love my microphone. And some new equipment for getting my voice from the microphone into the computer. So technical stuff you don't care about, but nice new stuff. I was using five-year-old equipment, and now I'm not. So you will hear a little bit of that over the next couple of months. You'll hear like this sound, which will be all new equipment, and then you'll hear me have a conversation with somebody with some older stuff. It should not be that big of a deal. Um, I don't think you're going to be taken out of the moment by it or anything like that. But hopefully by about mid-year, all of my pre-recorded stuff will be published and produced and out the door to you, and then the new stuff will all sound like Jenny and I today, where I have my dulcet tones um, coming to you right through the microphone. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by Dexcom and Omnipod. Please go to Dexcom.com slash juicebox or myomnipod.com slash juicebox to find out more. Of course, as you all know, there are links in your show notes of your podcast player, and they can also be found at juiceboxpodcast.com. Your support of the sponsors means a great deal to me, and I'm going to just come out and say it. It's how you get the podcast so much and why it's free. So if you're thinking of getting an insulin pump, check out an Omnipod. And if you want a glucose monitor, try a Dexcom. But if you do, use the links. Jenny Smith came on the podcast the first time in November of 2015, episode 37. She came on because a friend of hers, who was also a friend of mine, Ginger, said, I think you should have Jenny on. She's really interesting, and she thinks about diabetes the way you do. So she came on, and we talked about management stuff. 
and called that episode Jenny Smith, Diabetes Guru. Jenny came back on the show again, I think in an episode about A1C, and then for a long time, and you guys have probably heard me say this before, I thought, I really want to have her on more to talk about the the podcast, like the stuff we talk about on the podcast. I'd love to break it down with her. I loved the way Jenny talked about management. So in 2019, she started coming on, and we did the Diabetes Pro Tip series, which starts at episode 210, I think, and goes on for a while. I saw how much you guys enjoyed it, and let's be honest, how much I enjoyed it. So I was like, Jenny, come on, do some more stuff. So we started doing Ask Scott and Jenny and Defining Diabetes, all these little things you got on Fridays with Jenny. That is going to continue in 2020, and we're going to do another pro tip series in 2020. I'm not going to tell you what that is yet, but I think we hint at it in this one, and it's going to be very cool. Anyway, I love Jenny Smith. She works at Integrated Diabetes, and you can love her too for money. Not like that. You know what I mean? And you're not following now, but you can go to integrateddiabetes.com and hire Jenny, and Jenny can help you with your blood sugar management. But anyway, she's a delightful person, and she will be horrified that I just said that. But seriously, for a moment, before I get to my conversation with Jennifer, she is just really wonderful and honest and true. And every time I record with her, I don't even tell her what we're talking about. And I, I talk about that a little bit in this episode, but she is just such an incredibly good sport um, and a font of diabetes knowledge. I am thrilled that she comes on this show. I am genuinely happy to be able to call her a friend. And if you're in the Atlanta, Georgia area, I think in February, you can see Jenny and I on stage together, which I'm super excited to meet her in person for the very first time, even though she and I talk quite a lot. Those of you who don't like it when I talk too much are going to be thrilled because Jenny's super chatty today, which I love. Uh, what else? Last thing, I guess. Nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. Hey, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. You are going to be so surprised about what we're talking about today. Oh, I hope I'm ready. Oh, you will be. I think you know the answers to these questions. Oh, good. So, can you hear me okay? Yeah. I have a new setup. I can good, hear good, you good. just beautifully. Excellent. So, oh. we are recording, just so you know. Okay. Uh, so, everything you're saying is being recorded. As you <laughs> <laughs> you know that, but I just want to double check that you know because I was thinking about that we're doing this even today because when we were setting up times, I said to Jenny, I'm like, oh, that's right after New Year's. You know, I, I, let's not do that. And she's like, oh, but then it'll be so long since we spoke. And I thought, oh, that, that's nice. That's true. Um, <laughs> uh, and I started thinking back about how you came to be on the podcast and then to be on it more frequently. And I thought, you know what we haven't done? So I'm dying to Ooh. see what Jenny's going to say. I don't know. I've never interviewed you like a person with diabetes. I've always talked to you like a CDE, 
or somebody True. who came on to talk about a thing or something like that. So right. are you interested in talking about you, the person around sure. your diabetes a little bit? Sure. Sure. See, this is exciting. All it's right. Fun. Cool. All right. Well, now you all know listening that I just literally dropped that in Jenny's lap. It's kind of, it's, well, it's kind of funny because, you know, working with people, a lot of people like will ask, I guess, you know, like, how do you do things or like, well, what do you eat or like, you know, but I think it's more, um, it's more usually the parents that kind of ask, you know, things like, well, what did your parents do and whatnot? And I mean, I was diagnosed so long ago that it's not really relevant Yes, that's part of what I want to talk about. So, (laughs) okay, good. Yeah. All right, so you know what I'm getting at here. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, Jenny. Why don't we do what I do with every person? So, you know, the podcast is pretty much broken up into arms, right? And there's the interviews, which are always just people randomly. Like, Mm -hmm. they're not – I haven't really talked about this in a while, but I have stayed pretty far away from talking to people – who talk about diabetes as a matter of course, whether it's for uh, money, you know, it's their job, if it's because they have a blog or something like that, only because, and not because they're, they don't have great information, some of them, but because they're very practiced. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that they know the questions, they know the answers. And when you're speaking to them, it sometimes sounds like that. Um, right. Like they're just like they're like, reading a response. Yeah. Oh, like, like they're talking into someone who just was like, oh, look, they just asked question 17. I will use right. answer 43 for this, <laughs> you, you know. Um, and, and I just thought th- the community's been around for a long time. We sort of heard what those people have to say now, y- you know. And I think right. the proof's in the pudding where some of them are not doing it anymore. Sure. Y- you know, like they're. They're moving away. They're getting different jobs. I'm going to have to move a little bit here from my microphone. They, you know, uh, maybe blogging isn't what it used to be or, or whatever it ends up being. Maybe they've just said everything they want to say and they want sure. to go do something else now. So I've just always had on people. I've reached out into, you know, social media places. You know, originally, does anybody want to come on? People came on. Then listeners start asking to come on, which is terrific. It's how I get some of the best interviews. They're just people who are ready to talk about something. Um, cool. Yeah. So I, I think that's always very, uh, it's great. But then the other side of the podcast is sort of you and I talking about like management stuff, you know, whether right. it's the pro tip series that ran through 2019, or if it's maybe another pro tip series about, I don't know, something else that maybe will happen in 2020, <laughs> right? Or there's the Ask Scott and Jenny stuff that happens on Fridays. And it's interesting because while you and I really only record together, what do you think? Maybe like, a dozen times a year or something like that, right? Like it's not that right. often you are a constant on the show because of how it's spread out, right? So I thought, right. let's let people get to know you a little better. Um, <laughs> so I usually start these interviews and if you listen, you don't hear me say this because I cut it out. I always say, introduce yourself any way you want to be known and then we'll start talking. <laughs> so go ahead, Jenny. <laughs> introduce myself. See? Well, <laughs> not as easy as it sounds, is it? No, it's not as easy. I mean, introduce yourself can take a lot of different courses, I guess, depending on who you want to be known as, Mm, right? right. I mean, right. I I mean, so I'm Jennifer Smith or Jenny. Most people just call me Jenny. Um, Rare people call me Jennifer, my father-in-law, one of them. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And let's see. Um, 
I have two little boys. I live in Madison, Wisconsin. I've had type 1 diabetes for 31 and a half years. Um, I'm a certified diabetes educator and a registered dietitian. And um, I don't know. And that's, I guess that's, that's me in a very like little tiny nutshell. <laughs> what people listening don't know is that when I interview people, I never see them. I always do audio. But when Jenny and I talk, we see each other. It's a little, you know, because we're talking about stuff overlapping where we're, we both have ideas. We want to get them out. It's easier visually, right? Um, and so Jenny, when we do the podcast normally, sits pretty upright and she's in an authoritative position, right? Like she's about <laughs> to talk about diabetes. She knows about this and you could see it in her, in her, in her shoulders, in her face. She's like, God, ask me the stupid question, Scott, that I know the answers to with a drop of a hat. And just now I asked her who she was. Her shoulders shrugged forward. She leaned forward a little bit. She looks like she's 15 all of a sudden, which is fantastic. She's giggling. Her face is all like lit up and tight. It was very interesting to see you do that. Um, no one else will get to see it, but I really enjoyed it. Well, awesome. <laughs> you, just, you just went like, who, me? Jennifer Smith? I don't know. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah it's kind of silly. I mean, because, you know, and like I said before, it's like there are so many aspects to somebody's life. And I mean, since this right. is always all about diabetes, I mean, it's relevant to say, hey, you know, I've got diabetes or whatever. But I mean, outside of that, I'm a lot of other things too, I guess. Well, we might find out about some of them while we're talking. So let's just start with this because it's simple and it'll be a little comforting. You were diagnosed 31 years ago, you said? 31. And yep. I've never really asked you, do you tell people how old you are? I'm 44. Okay. So that you were 13. Yeah. Wow. I'm so good at the math stuff now. I'm getting really good at the simple subtraction and uh, addition <laughs> and things like that. So, okay, so hold on a second. So 31 years ago, I'm just going to write down 2,000. Today is, is today the second? Today is the second. This is going to yeah. be another interesting thing. We are going to record this, and it's going to go up almost on the same day. So 2,020 minus 31. Now, one minus zero, you can't take one out of zero, so you have to you borrow. So you make the two a one, and then you move one over to 10. So that's a nine. And now I have one, and you can't, now you can't subtract three from one. So I have to borrow from this. That makes that 19. And this is 11, and then that's eight. You were diagnosed 89 years ago. No. No. In 1989. I was diagnosed actually in 1988. Ah, I mean, we, just changed, we just changed years. So, yes, actually, my diagnosis, my diversary, diabetes anniversary, whatever you want to call it, um, is May 15th, 1988. All right. I was – so you – well, Jenny, this is weird. You were – 13 then? Uh-huh. And I was getting ready to, I was going to graduate from high school the following year. Ah. Oh, I'm old. Okay. You're not old. Well, I mean, <laughs> you have to say that because you're not that much younger than me, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of funny. It's always like number relevancy. I think it's interesting once you certainly, once you kind of get to a certain age, like number wise, mm -hmm. I feel like the number doesn't really reflect how you feel or maybe it does for some people I don't know like I see my age number as totally not where I view myself in terms of how I feel or how I act about things or whatnot I mean I can remember as a teenager thinking oh my god like 40 is really old like right. right you'd have a cane and like you like crippled and you know whatever and like I, I just I don't I don't feel that way like psychologically
I have a similar feeling. Um, like I, I got up off this sofa. So New Year's Eve, super exciting around here. Our children abandoned us pretty quickly. Um, Cole, Cole went to a friend's house and he's just like, I'm going uh, to the beach. And I was like, what? And so it turns out one of the kids on the baseball team has a beach house. So they all just went there. And then Arden's like, I'm going to go to Liv's house for New Year's. And Kelly and I were like, what are, okay. Like, you know, like you spent all those years, like making like kind of like a family friendly New Year's right. Eve thing. It was never a really big deal, but all of a sudden they were gone. And I was like, what do, what do you want to do? And she's like, oh, we could watch the last half of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and finish that off. And I was like, yeah, okay. And so here we are. Which are great shows, by the way. I love the Marvel. I said, here's what I said to Kelly. You were sitting on the sofa. If someone were to buy me a marvelous Mrs. Maisel t-shirt, I'd wear it. <laughs> so, but we're, here we are in the very last episode of the, of this current third season. And it's, there's like 10 minutes left. And Kelly says, Oh, it's like two minutes before midnight. And I said, do you want me to switch over to like the ball drop or something? And she goes, nah, I don't care. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I don't either. That's so funny. <laughs> that was sort of it. But then I get up to go to the restroom a little while later, and I know I like I wasn't limping, but you know I had been sitting down for a couple of right. like hours, and I was like, ooh, and I and she called me old as I walked away, and I got in the and I was walking through the hallway, and I thought I don't feel old, like right. like I'm a little more achy than I used to be, but like if I when I can't see myself, I don't feel that way. And right. The minute I wander past the mirror, I'm like, oh. Yeah, 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 it's going away. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, that's so, funny. so so that's a long time ago, right? Thirty-one years. Yeah. Um, do you remember management back then? Like, what oh, did you do? Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, I wouldn't say a hundred percent, but yes, a good a good majority of what we did. Um, I have good memory of because I also I mean, when I was diagnosed, I stayed in the hospital for an entire week. Mm-hmm. Now that's almost unheard of. I mean, you may be in the hospital a couple of days and then you're released with, you know, this line of information about what to do and whatnot. I mean, I've even worked with people who've gotten information about pumps and CGMs and everything right away in the hospital and they're on things within a month or two after diagnosis, yeah. which, you know, great. I mean, that's today's technology and where things move, but yeah, I mean, I was in the hospital for an entire week. I had a, a a room at the hospital that was full. It was so full that they had to start putting my balloons outside of my door from all of my friends and every everything that they brought balloons and like all of the inflated balloons and cards and flowers and everything. I mean, I had I had a really great group of friends at that age too and they came, their parents brought them almost every night, even though it was a school week. Um, It was in May, so we hadn't finished the school year yet, but they brought them almost every night to visit me and hang out with me and whatever. And, but from, I mean, from the beginning, you know, I, I learned how to give an injection in an orange. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I did. Uh, I learned how to check my own blood sugar. And while my mom and dad were there and would obviously help me do that. I mean, I went home from the hospital giving my own injections and doing my own finger sticks and all of that. I mean, the glucometers then were nothing like today's like 10 seconds and you've got a value. I mean, I had to like physically have this hanging drop of blood that I put on the test strip. I had to click a button. It counted a timer down and I had to wipe the blood off the test strip 
and then I had to push another button and then I had to stick it into the machine. And then it was like another two minute countdown before I actually got a value. Mm. It was like, it, I mean, and it seems like caveman age kind of stuff, right? But that's, that's where technology was. And in, I believe, I, I might be wrong about this, but I believe the first glucometer came to market in either like the home blood glucometers where you actually physically didn't have to pee on a strip to just see a color of where your blood sugar might be within a range. I think the first monitor for home use was either 1983 or 1985. So it wasn't very many years. It was state of the art too. And that was stated. That was huge. And I mean, so the monitor that I got in 1988 was actually an upgrade from that original, you know, um, so, yeah, I mean, it, and, you know, syringes, I mean, I used the old school stuff of uh, NPH or N, the cloudy insulin that you physically had to, like, roll in your hand in order <laughs> to mix everything up and make sure that you are getting an even concentration, you know, as you're sort of, I mean, it's an intermediate, it only lasts about 12 to 16 hours, right? So, so it, would, it, a day. it would settle, like, oil and vinegar, like, <laughs> dressing kind of feeling, or? Kind of, yeah. So if you imagine like um, the clear insulin that we have today, mm-hmm. um, and then if the bottle had been sitting in the fridge, um, all of the white content would settle. To, it almost looked like milk was settled at the bottom with white liquid at the top. And you physically had to roll it in order to distribute and kind of reconstitute everything within them, you know. So and that had to be mixed. I mean, you had to mix the regular R insulin, the short acting, along with the intermediate longer acting insulin i only took shots twice a day so you would draw them both into the same syringe same syringe okay yeah and mm-hmm. what was do you remember what was a success then like what were you aiming for um well and it, it i don't even mean a number you know what i mean like overall like what was your goal you know year to year from appointment to appointment like a glucose-wise kind of goal or yeah, what? your health. Like, were you just trying not to pass out? Like, were you, like, do you know what I mean? Like, were they doing an A1C at that oh, point? Yes. They were. Absolutely. Okay. In fact, I, I saw my pediatric um, endo every, it must have been every three or four months, mm-hmm. I, would, I would guess. Because I felt like having not been a very, like, sick kid before I was diagnosed, I feel like I don't recall going to the doctor as much as after I was diagnosed. Okay. And so, it, and it wasn't because I was ill and needed to go. It was because, you know, you do the annual like or the, the checkups. And so they were doing them pretty frequently for me. Um, and so, yeah, A1C, I mean, I started, if I remember correctly, my A1C when I was first diagnosed was like 12 mm-hmm. something. Um, and then after that A1C had, it drifted down. I mean, I'd, I'd really have to guess, but I would say that it was probably somewhere in the sevens for a fair amount of time. Um, and the doctors felt like that was really great. Mm -hmm. I mean, considering what we had available for tools to use, um, that was considered really, really good. In fact, I don't think that I had under, seven until I went to college and had when I when I went to college Humalog came out and Lantus was just 
around, if I remember correctly. I'm trying to remember when Lantis came out, but I I switched over um, because I, I actually have heard about Humalog insulin. I was like, wow, I don't have to wait 45 minutes before I can actually start to eat. Mm-hmm. So I asked my doctor and my doctor prescribed me, you know, some of the, the Humalog to be able to take. And I, I know that I mixed Humalog for a while with the cloudy insulin and I didn't use N or NPH. I actually used one my, by Lily. It was called um, Lente or L. Um, I've heard that. I've heard the L. Yeah. So um, I remember mixing Humalog with the Lente. And then when Lantus came out, I started on that very soon after it was to market or after I could get it, you know, with my insurance or whatever. Um, So, I mean, you know, just moving through so many different changes. But, you know, with the with the plan of the way that insulin was essentially dosed for me when I was first diagnosed, I mean, mealtimes were very specific timed. Mm. I mean, if even in the summer when I was not needing to get up early, my mom got me up at six o'clock every single day because I had to take my insulin and I had to eat because that was the plan. There was, there was no sleeping in. I mean, my, my, Insulin got dosed at six o'clock in the morning and about like five thirty in the evening. So about like that twelve hour span of time that you did to have between. Um, I didn't take insulin with my lunch because the peak action of the cloudy insulin was supposed to technically cover my lunchtime blood uh, lunchtime um, intake. Right. Um, I can remember going to and I went to for for school for grade school and middle school. I went to a Catholic school. So we didn't have a school nurse like at all. That was not available. In fact, when I was diagnosed, I had to go into the secretary's office and check my blood sugar. And she just, she just watched what I did. She didn't have two clues about like (laughs) what was right or what was wrong. There was no texting my mom or calling her or being like, Oh my gosh, her blood sugars, you know, 258. What should we do about it? Nope. I just, I checked my blood sugar because that was what I was supposed to do. And then I went to lunch. Right. And it. she was just there so that there was some adult supervision. But she didn't really add or she subtract anything. anything to it. Nope. Yeah. She did nothing about it. Nope. And I went to lunch and I ate my lunch and I went to the playground and I, I played on the playground. I had gym class. I was a cheerleader. I was on the volleyball team. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I did a million things. And I think about all those things that I do now. like, And even just thinking about it right now, I'm like, I had no visual on what my blood sugar was doing. Right. I had no visual. In fact, I do remember originally the doctors only really wanted me checking my blood sugar at mealtime. So I'd get up in the morning. I'd then check it again at lunchtime before dinner and always at bedtime. So it was like check it four times a day. And my mom at some point pretty soon after I was diagnosed, um, she said to the doctor, she's like, we need more test strips than this. She's like, I, because I was active um, and my dad was really active with my brother and I, she's like, I, you tell me that she needs to take insulin. Well, you also tell me that my, that this insulin can cause her to have a low blood sugar. So she's like, I need to know what her blood sugar is before she goes and rides her bike 10 miles downtown with her father, right. you know? Um, so I do remember testing more often, but again, that was as much extra visual as we had. It wasn't enough still to make 
Like it was just, it made you feel more comfortable, I guess. Like, it, it, right. Yeah. Right. So right. What, what, more information. But other than that, I mean, the, the thing was I relied and I was 13. So from the perspective of that versus a really small kid who doesn't really have bodily awareness yet about what symptoms might mean. I mean, I, I really, I guess, took to heart what the doctor told me about these are symptoms. This is what you'll feel like if this is happening or that was happening. And, and thankfully I, I could acknowledge those changes in my body. I could tell if my blood sugar was getting too low and, and stuff. Um, I remember my dad always bringing um, gummy bears along <laughs> to go biking. Uh, <laughs> Sounds nice. It was, it was nice. It was, you know, it's, it's a good memory just with my dad. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of those things that we now have a visual to, there was, there was no perspective of that. Right. Um, in fact, I'm really proud of my parents. I, two and a half months after I was diagnosed, I had original, I had previous to diagnosis been signed up to go on, um, I was a Girl Scout. Mm -hmm. So I was signed up to go on a, an away camping trip. And, um, it was supposed to be primitive, which we would camp, we would dig our own, um, we dug our own refrigerators, we lined it with straw and ice to put our cold or our, put our food in to keep it like cold and cool. Um, I mean, we had to start our own fires. I mean, it was everything to learn how to like camp in the wilderness, really. And my mom was like, that's not going to suffice. My daughter needs more than this. She's like, you need to allow her to take a cooler along with this food that she knows how to, you know, how to use. Yeah, medicine. Medicine, essentially, right. And my insulin had to be kept cool. My mom's like, you're not putting her insulin in the ground. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's not, not how this is going. <laughs> that's not how this is going, exactly. So, I mean, they, she certainly had to make a whole bunch of different, like, extra considerations with the camp that year um, because there was somebody for that two weeks of camping that actually had to bring ice in every other day to fill my cooler with so that it would stay cold. Oh, it was two weeks? It was two weeks. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, and the, the kicker of all of this is <laughs> at the end, thankfully it didn't happen earlier, but um, near into the, into the second week, the, the dug holes for like putting in the food for the other campers were starting to like fail. Mm -hmm. And so some of the stuff that they were going to put in the holes, they asked me, can we just put some of this in your cooler? Cause there was space then since I had been eating stuff. And I was like, sure. I mean, I was 13. I was like, all right, whatever, put it in the cooler. I don't care. Right. Well, I came home from camp with food poisoning. Ew. Cause, oh, the, cause that food came out of the ground and then went into your, <laughs> I thought you so were going to say that was the day Jenny Smith entrepreneur was uh was born and you charged the kids to use your cooler <laughs> yeah no 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 i came home from from camp with food poisoning my mom was like so upset mm. <laughs> she's got this child with like diabetes they've never had a major illness like this before i mean it was it's it's stunk but i survived arden was sick for 10 days recently right before christmas oh. and um i could feel it in my heart like i was like okay she's getting sick I will start now mentally preparing myself for not sleeping for the next week and like everything being messed up. There were days where she didn't need like hardly any insulin and you know, you're just going along, you find the pattern. I have to admit now, like 
it doesn't take me long. Like I just have to tell myself like she's sick, like switch right. to sick, you know? And then, but there is, it is always in the back of your head. Like, when's it going to stop? Like when's right. it, when's it going to, like, when is it all of a sudden, but this time she kind of gracefully went back into needing insulin. It was kind of nice. It huh. was like a ramp back up. Took a couple of days that went right in to her cyst removal surgery. Oh, like three days before her cyst removal surgery, she's looking at Kelly and I, and she's like, I am getting this thing removed. And she's, I'm like, okay. And here's why she had planned it. I can't believe that me, a person who missed over 50 days of his senior year of high school, just to go to work or sleep or whatever. Um, (laughs) My daughter was like, no, let's plan this surgery that has basically a, a one to two week recovery period over my Christmas break. Because I don't want to miss any class. And I was like, wow. When she said that, I was like, get out of here. We've done a way better job than I thought with you. (laughs) Because my brain would have immediately been like, oh, my God, are you saying I'm going to miss two weeks of school? (laughs) This is fantastic. We can remove something once a year if you want to. (laughs) Let's get on this. Do you need a rib? You know, like, but she was just the complete opposite. So she, she's like, I think she willed herself to feel better. And when we got to the hospital, you know, at five o'clock in the morning for this procedure, she's like, I feel okay. I'm breathing clearly. Do not tell these doctors I was sick last week. (laughs) I was like, okay. Okay. Um, And we used her, um, we we maintained control of her insulin throughout the procedure and afterwards and before. It was really cool. I'll talk about it on the podcast at some point, but uh, it, it all worked out really well. But she was, I feel bad for your parents because I have all this visual data. You know, and your mom was just like, I got to wake up a sick kid at six in the morning and give her eggs. Like, what if she's not hungry? And it did not occur to your mom ever on a Saturday. Like, we could do this at eight instead. And then at eight at night, like she was just like, this is the rule. This is what we do. Right. And it worked for you. Honestly. And it worked. It it worked. It was what it was. In fact, it's it's kind of funny, you know, and I, I mean, I guess once I got to college too, you know, there were pumps on the market. I just was not, I'd gotten so, I guess, attuned to doing things the way that I had always been doing them with injections and checking my blood sugar and, and everything that I just didn't even want to consider a pump. I didn't start considering a pump until after I was married. Really? Okay. Um, Cause it so I, because it worked and I used injections for a long time. I, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, ginger. Um, I mean, my ginger has used injections having come off of a pump that just wasn't for her. She's like injections work. I can make it work for me. And I, I was, I was actually kind of, um, kind of, I hesitated a lot when we were talking about like starting on a pump Mm. and what that would mean and whatever. And by that point, pumps were actually much, much better, smaller, easier to use, you know, you can put ratios in and everything that it would appropriately dose and figure out what you needed, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I, it's, it's interesting just the difference in. Before we move out of that part of your life, I have a question. Yeah. You you described a pretty solid seven A one C you didn't have a lot of, you know, you weren't low, right? You weren't, you weren't, Jenny wasn't the dizzy girl or anything like that at school. So right. Better than better now? Mm. I think that it's, I think that it's better now. I really do. I mean, the, you can look at it a couple of ways. I was also pretty young and had a very watchful parental piece Mm -hmm. to my management. I mean, I, 
my parents were really, especially my mom who did all of the cooking and all of that kind of stuff. She was really like, this is what the doctor says that we will do. I mean, which we've talked about before in the podcast. She She stuck to it, but things were also not what they are now by any means. And she stuck to it. And I think the biggest thing of why I had some good stability, while of course we didn't see the variance in what was happening between, Mm -hmm. we only had finger sticks to look at. Um, and the average glucose, you know, as a, as an A1C, of course, we know the the missing pieces in only seeing an A1C, yeah. right? But on average, if I kept a seven-ish A1C, and it was in the low sevens, it really meant that because my mom was so regimented in, you'll take your insulin now, you always get this much, you know, and I was on the exchange diet too. Mm-hmm. I, there was no counting carbs for probably at least a year and a half before I met with my CDE. Um, and she taught me about carb counting, mm-hmm. like and dosing insulin, you know, kind of based on that sort of concept. Um, but other than that, I mean, I got, you know, two starches, a fruit, a milk, two proteins, a fat with like all of my mealtimes. And my mom was on it. She was like, this is what you're getting. Right. Yeah. And she didn't vary from it. And my snacks, I mean, I don't know if you remember I don't even know who they were made by, but the, do you remember things called snack packs? They were like four little crackers and a little packet of cheese, quote unquote cheese, which really is like cheese food. It's really nothing. It's like Velveeta, really. Yeah, there's goo right? in the pa- at the end it of the packet. Like, yeah. <laughs> but that was my afternoon snack for years. End of the night, it was peanut butter and graham crackers because that's what worked. And like, so variance, you know, there wasn't a lot of variance just because we found things that made things stable. And do you feel like that informed how you eat as an adult? Like, are you, do you still eat like that? Are you like, because what you're describing really is it's not a lot of variability, like in food, like you're you're having graham crackers every night with a thing. Are you one of those people who kind of doesn't care about food? Are you just like, hey, yeah, that's fuel to keep me going? Or have you found a love of food now that you can use your insulin differently? Um, I guess it's kind of a combination. I mean, I still, food is fuel. I mean, you're supposed to eat in order to be able to live, right? Mm -hmm. It's a basic necessity of life. But I also, from the standpoint of my education and my you know, collegiate schooling and everything, I understand the benefit of different kinds of foods and the importance of variety in those foods. And I also really, really love, I love cooking and I love baking. So I've, I've loved the fact that with what we have now technology wise, I can use that to have the variety and enjoyment of food while still acknowledging that food is really just, Mm -hmm a purpose. I mean, there's a purpose for it, right? I have such a weird feeling about food. I don't particularly enjoy eating. Um, Hmm. and I never sort of have, but if you get me too close, like this Christmas time, like I swear, I was just like, I probably for four days lived off of like a chocolate chip cookie every three hours. I was like, that's enough. You know, like I'll just eat that cookie and then have another cookie and then another cookie. And, and then at the end of the day, I was like, what'd you eat today? I was like, I had six chocolate chip cookies spread out over like 18 hours. That's fine. Isn't it? Um, and, and as it was going, I looked in the mirror three days ago and I was like, I've gained five pounds like (laughs) since the Christmas break started. I absolutely know I have. And so I just, 
woke up the other day and made some eggs. And I was like, oh, I'll just low carb it for a few days and drop this water weight. And I don't have like a, do you know what I mean? Like, like I don't, like you couldn't mention a meal right now where I'd be like, oh my gosh, that, I have to have let's that. do that right now. But I'm not thin and I'm not, <laughs> I, I'm not obese. I'm just like, I'm like, my weight fluctuates around. And if you get me too close to sugar and I get going with it, if I wasn't smart enough to recognize what was happening, I could probably eat myself to death in like a month. I'm thinking, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, but I don't have any real like excitement around food. I yeah. just, I don't. Well, sugar feel is like, addictive. No, from it a definitely is. Standpoint. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, once you start eating it, it's the reason that you continue to finish a dessert, even though from the standpoint of taste perception, mm-hmm. you don't get any more delightful response from continuing to eat the dessert after that first initial like oh my god this is so yummy so yummy and you just continue to eat it because that first initial response was the yumminess factor but you really don't get any yummier like all the bites keep tasting the same you could just take one bite and stop did you see the um well i don't want to get too far off the subject but did you see the research of um they they got rats addicted to cocaine and sugar and then once they were like, you know, knew what both of them were and they both were affecting their brains, when they gave them a choice, they chose the sugar over the cocaine. Interesting. Isn't that something? So. Meaning more highly addictive than, yes. Me- than the cocaine. Yeah. Meaning when you give an addicted rat the chance to choose between cocaine and sugar, it took sugar. Now, I don't know why. Maybe it tasted better. Maybe. I don't know. You, you so know I wonder, but- too, from a physiologic standpoint, I wonder if the body, though, recognized that sugar was actually quote unquote nutritive right it was energy whereas the cocaine was sort of a false it's kind of similar to those people who decide that coffee is their like food for the morning right they don't eat a breakfast they just eat caffeine right of of coffee and it, it gives them this energy level but unfortunately that energy level isn't like a sustained energy because there's really nothing backing up there's nothing there's no fiber, there's no extra protein, there's no extra fat or right. anything along with it. Just goes in, bumps them up, and then you get that like crash down. MyOmnipod.com forward slash juice box. Get yourself a pod experience kit today. Did you know that 95% of Omnipod users that were surveyed said that they trust their Omnipod system to manage their diabetes? That is a big number right? Like you can't find 95% of anybody to agree on anything. Here at the Juicebox podcast, 100% of the Juicebox podcast hosts love the Omnipod tubeless insulin pump. And let me go one further. 100% of Juicebox podcast hosts children love it too. But you may ask, Scott, why do I want an Omnipod? Well, obviously Omnipod is the only tubeless insulin pump available. So you are not tethered to anything. You can swim with it and bathe with it, which as I say it here, you're probably like, oh, that's nice. But no, it's a huge deal. Do you have any idea how many times you get wet in the course of a day? At least once, right? That's one time you don't have to take off your insulin pump and put it back on or forget to put it back on and then have your blood sugar shoot up. Just think about the swimming. I know it's cold right now, but one day it's going to be warm again. You're going to go into a hot tub or a swimming pool or an ocean. And those of you who live in the middle of the country, I hear you get into lakes sometimes. That seems weird to me, but right on. Well, now you can get into that super dirty lake and still get your insulin. 
don't take my word for it. You can wear a non-functioning pod right now to see how it feels. You'll be able to find the area that works best for you and feel the freedom you could have with the Omnipod system just by asking for Omnipod to send you an absolutely free, no obligation experience kit right now. They're going to send a pod right to your house for you to try on and wear. Go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box. It's the beginning of the year. It's the beginning of a new you. And while you're out there doing big things for you in 2020, get yourself a Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor. Now this very similarly is done at a link dexcom.com slash juice box. Seems you see the pattern. Anyway, there are also links in your show notes and at juiceboxpodcast.com, but I'd prefer if you just typed it right into the linky link, right? The the browser thing, the web machine, juiceboxpodcast.com. That's nice, but dexcom.com forward slash juicebox. That's better. Myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. Wonderful. When you get your Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor, you are going to have your eyes opened. Jenny talked about already today, the idea of seeing more, right? The idea of finding out what's happening when your eyes are closed to diabetes. Well, your eyes will never be closed again when you have a Dexcom G6 with you. You're always going to be able to know exactly where your blood sugar is, how fast it's moving, and what direction it's moving in. Think about that. Think about being able to make decisions with your insulin based on real-time knowledge of what your blood sugar is doing. And if you're a parent, a guardian, or a loved one of someone with type 1 diabetes, imagine what it's like with the share and follow features to be able to see someone's blood sugar remotely while they're at school, perhaps. I think I mentioned it in this episode, but Arden was in a lockdown today at school. So we turned her basal down because it was happening over top of lunch and her blood sugar was starting to get low, right? In the lockdown, we didn't know how long she was going to be in there. So we dialed her basal back to keep her blood sugar stable and from getting low until she got out of the lockdown and went to lunch. Do you know how we knew that was happening with her blood sugar? That's right. You guessed it. Arden has a Dexcom G6. Saw it right there on my iPad. I'm staring at it right now. I was talking to Jenny and off to the side, my iPad, Arden's blood sugar, sent her a little note. I was like, hey, what's going on? She goes, we're in a lockdown. I said, oh, cool. Temp basal decrease. Just like that. All right, that's enough of all this. Dexcom.com forward slash juicebox. Myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. Get the gear that Arden uses and get 2020 off to a great start on the right foot with the technology that's going to help you help yourself. So you make it through school and high school. Okay, you're very active, which I wanted to point out because you you were an active person, which I think in those variable times where you couldn't see your blood sugar, that was probably a big help to you, even though you maybe weren't thinking about it that way at the time. Um, you you go off to college? You, did you go to college nearby? How did that work out? I did go off to college. I mean, it was not, it was not far away. Um, but you didn't live but at I, home? But I didn't live at home. I went off my freshman year. I lived in the dorms. Um, I lived with... I actually was fortunate in having a dorm my freshman year with a high school friend who was actually a a grade school friend as well. Um, so had known me a long time. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I went off to college and, you know, did my thing in college and did you go find foods in the cafeteria that matched your, I was, 
I was on the college campus swipe your badge and pay for your food kind of plan. Yep. I mean, whatever was there. We did thankfully have some outside of just the cafeteria. We did have some um, like sub shops and pizza shops and other like options on campus as well. And our dorm room was actually quite, it was quite nice. We actually had a, a big refrigerator down in the common area um, and you could put food in it. There was a freezer down there. There was a stove and everything to kind of cook in. We were allowed to have microwaves in our, in our rooms. Um, and my mom, um, at that, at the time you had to get like a specific written to be able to have an extra refrigerator in your room. And we did that. So I had like a mini, like a, like a camping refrigerator and in my counting in my carbs room. by then, but by then I was counting carbs and you were yeah. using Humalog. So it was a little more like that. No problems getting through college, like medically. Did your A1C no. stay the same? Did it go up or down? My A1C again, it stayed, it never got into above the sevens. Um, I don't think until I was, it was probably like my senior year in college, if I remember correctly, that I was in the sixes. And that was just from a knowledge of, I mean, I'd been going to school. I knew that I wanted to be a diabetes educator eventually. Um, I had kind of a whole course of this is where your career is kind of going to go. And so I, I had made a fair amount of changes by just starting to also do some research about things and how, you know, how this works versus how that works, et cetera. So um, on my own, I ended up, you know, kind of moving things down further by the end of my college career. Um, so, yeah. I'm going to do Arden's lunch real quick. So while, yeah. while we've been talking, Arden was in a lockdown for like a half an hour. So she texted me and said, is there something going on in town? We're locked down. And I said, I have no idea. I'm recording the Jenny. And that's where I went. I was like, look, I'm not going to stop podcasting to find this out. You know, it's going to be nothing. Um, And then she gets a note. Then she sent me a note. A cop came in and said, we can get up, but we can't leave the room. But this was during her lunch. So we had tempted her basils back when it first happened, just in case she got caught in there for a while. So, um, now she's off to lunch, and I'm going to put her basils back, um, try to figure out how much to, I guess we're going to do this. <laughs> One second, I don't know. Like, now everything's messed up, but no big deal. We'll figure it out. And, hmm, I don't, I got to remember what's in there. Half a bagel, Pizzelle cookies. All the Italians are mad at me now because I said Pizzelle. I think it's Pizzelle. Um, uh, I wouldn't have even known that. Grapes, yogurt, something else down in there. Ooh, uh, oh, okay. There's one of those like like kind, kind of like nutty bars. Um, all right. Anyway. Um, okay. Yeah, so it, it's, in, it's, do you meet your husband in college? Uh, I met my husband in high school. In high school? <laughs> I don't know why I didn't just, uh, I didn't guess that. Well, I don't know why. You guys really don't, but well, you do know Jenny by now. Like by now, like I should have just said to Jenny, did you meet your husband in kindergarten? Or did you guys bump into each other on the first day? And <laughs> did he hold your hand? And <laughs> so you met we him. In- went, we, we met in high school when we got, you know, freshman year, but we started dating 
Um, we went to junior prom together mm-hmm. and then we started dating that summer. So did he go to a different college? Than he you? did. He actually went to the Marine Corps. Oh, look at you. So he went and right into the Marines out of high school. Yeah. And you went off to college. I went to college and then he um, went to, he moved once um, he could get a different order. Um, he moved um, to Milwaukee and he went to university there. Um, so we were close enough then we could drive. Um, and then we got married about a year after he graduated from college. So I'm doing the math on that and the best of my world history in my head. He didn't have to serve overseas at that time, right? He didn't. No. no. Okay. And uh, how long did he, is he still in or how long did he stay? No, no. Um, he, when he was, he finished, he was done after eight years. He was, he didn't decide to make a lifelong career of it. Although at this point he says that he, he wishes to some degree that he would have, um, just for different, you know, reasons. Um, but yeah, so he did not stay in long term. It was just eight years. It's so funny. He, you said no, just eight years. I was like, wow, that seems like a really long time, but yeah. not a lifetime. Yeah. Not a lifetime, no. Um, and we, I mean, we've been we've been married a long time. Uh, we've been married for twenty years. Wow. So you got married in oh in two thousand. We got married in ninety nine. Ninety nine. Okay. Well, I think I got married in ninety nine. No, ninety six. Six is upside down nine. That's what confused me. Um, I got married. It was like 12 when I got married. So, um, yeah, 96. I think I'm married 24 years this year. Wow. So what are you like 21, 20-ish, like right in there, right? We'll be, yeah, it was 20 this past June. So it'll be 21 in this coming June. Yeah. we. My wife and I joke all the time. Like the great thing about getting married earlier and having kids earlier is that you have plenty of energy to get divorced at the end. So. Yeah. <laughs> We'll be able to we'll be able to work up the energy to be like I might get an apartment. Yeah, <laughs> we'll we s- kind of we kind of did things different. <laughs> I, we actually didn't have kids early. You know, we actually did a lot of things. We moved. We lived in a lot of different states. We, um, you know, we lived in D.C. for a really long time, um, and so we we traveled a lot before kids. So we did a lot of things just as a like a couple prior to actually having kids. That sounds very nice. I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do it at all. Yeah. Our life just pushed us in one direction and you you might not have had the same things pushing you. And so you're like, Ooh, we could go do this. Everybody's thing is great. You end up in DC. Is that the first place you're a nurse in a hospital? Um, no, actually after I finished my clinical internship, um, in Colorado, then um, I took a job down in Orlando. So I moved down to Orlando um, and I took a job there as a clinical dietitian inpatient. Um, and I did do some outpatient education as well, um, at which time I started logging my hours to be able to sit to take the um, the CDE or the diabetes educator exam. Um, and after we weren't in Florida for long, we were there for about a year and then we moved up. Um, my husband took a job up in DC. So we moved up to, to the DC area and we lived up there for almost eight years. You worked in a hospital there as well. I did. I worked right in um, DC at Washington hospital center, um, with the endocrine team. Um, and so we did inpatient outpatient, we did emergency room, um, education and, um, I did two diabetes clinics um, with the endo team. So, 
Yeah. Do you think that moving around and having to get new jobs, I'm assuming you ended up in different positions at different jobs. Do you think that's all how you built this up or like, like your knowledge? Because yeah. 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 Are you a person who doesn't want to be somewhere forever? Or are you just like, Oh, I've learned everything I can about this. I should go learn something else now. Were you back then? Um, or did you just follow the jobs with your husband or how did it go? I think we were more so, um, I know it was a little bit of, of kind of everything. I mean, I knew that I needed experience in order to be able to move toward what I wanted to eventually be able to do. Um, and so while I'm, I'm really happy in one place, right? <laughs> whereas my husband is sort of the, the wanderlust. He likes to see an experience and that's great because otherwise I may not have ever experienced a lot of other things. Right. It was, it's great. Um, but with the moving, I was also able to move my career. And, you know, I, I learned a lot of different things in the different places that I worked. Um, you know, starting out just as a clinical dietitian um, teaches you a lot of things about all of the different health conditions um, and how to manage them and the, and the nutrition that goes into them and everything. Um, and then also seeing diabetes in respect to other conditions. And how it responds. And so I, I learned a lot, you know, along the way um, and eventually got to my job in, in D.C. at my, the second hospital at Hospital Center with the endocrine team, I think was prior to working for Integrated was probably my favorite besides what I do now, okay. only because it was with a it was with a really good team of endocrine doctors who. Who were very like foot forward in moving to what would be good to do in diabetes management. And they were very willing to accept us. There were four CDEs on the team, including myself, and they viewed us as an extension of themselves. So, you know, we would and could with the outpatients that we worked with, um, we could make adjustments to their pump settings. We could help them um, for our type two patients who were using pills. We could help adjust. All the doctors did was sign in and sign off on our recommendations. That was it. So I learned a lot, you know, from that and have been able to kind of bring that forward in, in what I do now. So I watched my wife, like my wife has an incredibly complicated job. And by that, I mean, there's a ton of complicated information that she has to understand before she can make her complicated rulings on things. And I don't just mean like a page of information. I mean, like hundreds of pages of, you know, what's come before legally, sometimes medical stuff to understand. Like it's, it's really fascinating, but there's a moment when I see her at a job and I can see it now, like, Oh, she learned the job. Now she's just doing it. Yeah. And then I wonder like how long before she gets, like antsy, like, oh, I'm not, like learning. I'm not learning anything new. And I don't think everyone feels that way. And I think we're lucky when people do like when a person like you feels that way, that's great. Because I mean, honestly, if I would have said to you when you were in Florida, you know, one day, Jenny, you're going to sit in front of a computer and help people manage their diabetes. You would have been like, that's not a thing. Stop it. it right. You know, like you, right. you made that up where one day you'll meet a person who will introduce you to another person. Then you're going to talk to somebody. They're going to record your voice. And this is going to end up being like a fulfilling thing for you. You would have been like, no, no, I'm a right. nurse. Like I help, you know, like that kind of thing. It's, it's, you never know where you're going to go. We need some people 
to bounce through, grab up ideas and keep yeah. moving, like collect, you know, collect ideas like a, like, I don't know, like a piece of gum on the floor, picking up dirt, like, you know, just like constantly grabbing more and more until it's so right. full, you can't do anything with it. And I think it's obvious how important it is when you and I speak, because I know I say this and I don't know how, how well people take it. Like I really did start this episode today, not telling you what we were going to do on purpose to make the point later that if you love those pro tips or the ask Scott and Jenny stuff, Jenny does not know what we're going to talk about when I see her face pop up in front of me. I'm, (laughs) I'm really just like, okay, here's what we're doing now. We're recording boom, because I want her to just access her brain and say what she's going to say. Like, I think that's right. Right. I don't want you to prep. Which and you're really cool about it because there are some people who are come on the show and I get like dissertations from them. Tell me what you're going to ask. I'm like, I don't think this show's right for you, right? <laughs> yeah, because I don't know what I'm going to ask you yet, and you know, then I and I don't want it to feel stilted. I don't want to feel like we're reading to each other, right? But you couldn't do that if you didn't have all those experiences. It's not like you went to college right. and you came out like this, like you know, boom. I know. So let me ask you this: not that this would minimize somebody who isn't. But how valuable is it being a diabetes educator who has diabetes? Does it take oh, it to another level? Absolutely. A hundred percent. I More than that, it, because I think that's the piece that's missing, unfortunately, with most endocrine practice and, and with many ed- educators. It, there are very few who get it from the perspective of life with it. There are very few. And the... The ability to take the relevant clinical information and the book information and to be able to translate it into like living it and applying it in life. You can't do that unless you live with something. You you cannot, you can't. There is no ability to do it. I mean, I I can't, I can give somebody, let's say, who has had an amputation right? And let's say they have diabetes, and I can give them a whole bunch of different ideas for how they could get exercise and activity and whatnot, despite having, let's say, a lower limb, you know, amputation or whatnot. I, however, I don't physically know what it takes to move my body without limbs. Mm -hmm. I don't. And I would never, and I've got a very dear friend of mine who's married um, to a wonderful guy who um, was overseas and lost both of his lower legs. And he's a phenomenal athlete now and whatever. He's, but seeing him in action and, and everything, I, I know from the perspective of diabetes, I would, I would never assume yeah. his perspective how he manages is, things. Right. His it's perspective different. is much more... Uh, relevant i would think right than just somebody who's like i've yeah i will i'll say that you know when i started the blog all those years ago i always just thought like well this blog will be for people who have kids who have diabetes and therefore you know it's not it's not questionable for me to be writing about it right and i always did keep it that way for a really Mm -hmm. long time that it was always just my perspective of being the parent of a kid with type one i tried really hard not to put myself in my daughter's shoes and then when i moved to the you know when when the ideas that we talk about now kind of started to form for me, it was not lost on me that now I was talking about how to use insulin as a person who doesn't have diabetes, but not just talking about it in a real like kind of like, this is what's written down in the package insert. This is what you're supposed to do kind of way. 
Right. And I was worried, like, when the podcast started, I was like, people might, like, not like this, like, that it's me, you know, or a person like me, or maybe the podcast is just going to be for other parents still. But it has grown beyond that. Like, there are as many adults listening as parents of kids. And right. I, I still think that one of the nicest things anyone said to me is that I was talking to a person who had type 1 diabetes, and they said, I forget you don't have diabetes when we're talking about it. Right. And I was right. like, oh, that's so nice. Like, you know what I mean? But I think that I think that much like you going from job to job to job, that blog put me in different scenarios and then being the parent of somebody and actually caring and then being the caregiver, not just like a dad, like not that dads aren't involved, but like I'm like the 24-hour right. parent, you know, it, all these little pieces, you can't like help but you can't help but to pick things up at some point. And, right. you know, and then the podcast allows me to sort of step back and make sense of it all and, and kind of like take the parts, take them apart, put them back together and, and make a bigger idea out of them. But right. I was worried. Like I thought people would be like, and it happens sometimes. Like I'll get a note every once in a while from somebody who says, like you said, my endocrinologist. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's just a, like, I'm just misspeaking. But from a person who has type one, they don't like that as much. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, they're like, eh, and I'm like, oh, and I get that. Like, I, I do. I really get it all. So, yeah. So tell me when you, from meeting people in a hospital setting to now meeting people one-on-one, -on -one, what do you find to be, like, I, I asked this question of my daughter's endo a long time ago, and it led to this podcast, really. I said, what would you change for people if you could? And I'm going to ask you a slightly different question. What do you find that people are lacking, that once they have, things change for them? Like, what do you give them that ends up being a big deal? Can you boil it down to a thought or a couple of thoughts, do you think? I, I feel like the easiest way to describe the difference between one type of, like, present education and another, like, what we provide is, like a, a helping hand, like a holding something that's, that's there. Like the people I work with, they know that they can reach out and we really try hard to get back to people within about like a 24 to 48 hour time period with a response. In fact, most of our clients, you know, if they've got something significant, I mean, they text us. You can't, there's no, there's no helping hand in a physical endos office or another CD's office. They're not going to give you their line to yeah, text them. Right. They've just, it's, and if they are, it's a really special person that you're working with. Mm -hmm. It really is. Um, so I, I think from that perspective, the difference being like, I always hated when I first started in my career with initial jobs, I really did not love inpatient work. From a perspective of education, teaching somebody something when they are in a state of illness and there are six million other people trying to help them in that's not a that's not a time to teach them something. Yeah. It's not. And and I mean from the standpoint of let's say, you know, many people come in, in the hospital with one thing and they find out by blood tests, oh my goodness, now you have, you know, type 2 diabetes or whatever. Look at your blood sugars, blah, blah. Sure, they need to be taught some basics. Absolutely. I mean, you have to teach them how to take insulin or how to dose their pills or how to check their blood sugar. So they need to be taught that. Absolutely. You're not going to send them away, you know, without. But from a real perspective of true in-depth education, an inpatient setting is 
not the place to do it. It's crazy that you say that because last week, you know, like I said, Arden had a you know, had a cyst removed and they did it. Um, uh, God, what is it called? What's the process where they just make little holes and go in with like a machine? Like a, oh, like a laparoscopic? Yeah. And so she had these three small incisions and she's, you know, coming out of, you know, it's an outpatient procedure. So she's out of the, you know, the anesthesia and she's pulling herself together. And when we left, I said to Kelly, I'm like, the nurse that talked to us at the end, she really just kept hammering these like three points over and over again. She must have said them like four times. And while, and like, by the time she gets to like the third time, you're like, yeah, yeah, I, I hear you. Like, I got it. Thanks. Right. But then you come to realize it's a, it's a, it's a frantic time in people's like lives. And these are the like, don't die advice, right? Like, like, right. let me make That's sure you do is. these things right now. This is what's important. And then call the doctor if you have a bigger problem. Right. It's not a time to start talking theoretically about, you know, what's next or right. how you, you know, the next. Le- and so I, I always do try to say on the podcast a lot, like, I think your, your, your endos are all doing an amazing job. You, you know what I mean? They just don't have access to you the way you just described. Um, right. And I have noticed when I've spoken to people privately, some of them really just do need you to say, yeah, that makes sense. You're doing a good job. I'd keep going like that. Trust right. yourself a little bit. Right. Y- you know, it's um, it's fascinating. Well, I, think, I think within that, too, I think some people have the sense that they could be adjusting, right? Mm-hmm. They have the sense, but they've gotten it drilled in from an endo, perhaps, or whoever else who takes their pump from them when they get in the office and makes all the adjustments, they get the sense that they're not supposed to be, that they're like doing something illegal by actually touching their pump and making a change that will help their life right now. Right. So look at 31 years ago, little Jennifer Smith getting yanked out of bed on a Saturday morning to have (laughs) breakfast. Right. Your mom, your mom probably could have like fudged that around a little bit, but she's just like, no, this is what someone told me. I find that to be incredibly true. And so you get the don't die advice and it seems like the only advice and it feels like the most important thing. And then, and then I think that it gets lost and I know I've said it before, but you just said it. People start seeing, I could be making a change here that I think would be beneficial to me, but the doctor didn't say to. And so then they end up with a, it's a more of a psychological conflict then, you you know, like I want to do this thing. But I, I, I'm afraid I'm not allowed to. But if I don't, I'm afraid I'm hurting myself. So they get caught in complete inaction then. They're frozen, right. you know. Well, they're afraid to get hand slapped then. Yeah. You know, they're afraid to get this, like, complete, like, you're a, a five-year-old child. And why did you, you know, throw that toy across the room? I didn't you tell know, you you could touch your basil and slap. Right? I didn't yeah. tell you you could touch that. And I think that with the people that we work with, I think that's the piece, too, that helps them kind of come to terms with, gosh, I can be, this is how to make an adjustment because Mm -hmm. Jenny taught me how to make this adjustment. I see this change now and I can adjust it. I don't have to check with her. You know, when she, when I upload the next time, she's going to see the change that I made and we'll talk about it and whatever. But I think initially many people feel like very stuck. No, I know. No, I, I, I completely agree. Um, I have. I actually wrote a couple of questions down for you. That might be hard oh. to believe, right? Hold on a second, but I don't remember them, so I have to look now. Uh, so, well, this is. We just hit this. Like I was going to ask you the importance of people having confidence in their decisions, and I think that's mm-hmm. um, that's important. How much do you see? Maybe you don't. Maybe you're seeing more forward-thinking people in your practice now. But I, I feel like. So I feel like when 
when I came into like the blogging world, it was fairly early on in it. And then Mm -hmm. you could see people, they take the, what ends up happening is, is whatever part of you, you feel strongest about, or, you know, a thought that you feel strongest about when you start talking to other people, this is the, now the angle you come from. And some people come from a um, scared angle and they might write a blog forever. That's about like, this this is scary. Diabetes is scary. Mm -hmm. And it's a really valid, you know, perspective. And then some people are, you know, I just, you know, whatever they do, I went from the management standpoint where I started thinking about like, I don't want this to be my daughter's story. Like, you know, 15 carbs, 15 minutes, this is as good as we can do. Like, I just thought there must be something better here. I bet you there is. Um, But then that becomes commonplace. Like you can see, I'm more of a management oriented, you know, Mm -hmm. content provider. But what happens when you're a fear oriented content provider and you've been doing this now for 20 some years and you know we went from two you know two tests a day and not really knowing what was going on to glucose monitoring or the ability to check your blood sugar with tiny little drops of you know blood more frequently like what at what point do you have to look back and say that's old-timey thinking that's not valuable anymore like it's actually harmful to people at this point like Mm -hmm. we're teaching you can't teach 1975 in 2020, but those people have had great success with it, you know, or, or it's all they've known or, you know, and I feel weird, but there's got to be a moment where like, I wish there was an arbiter of like, of, of patient sharing who could come in once in a while and go, Hey, you know what? Your thing was great in, in 96, but you got to stop telling people that now, like, because that's right. not relevant anymore. Um, right. I've always talked about the idea of, I don't want my daughter to ever look up and think, oh, wow, no one's doing it like this anymore. You know, right. what, you know what I mean? Because not, not to change for the sake of changing, but when there's real leaps made to leap along with it. Um, right. do you see a lot of people who have old ideas and do those old ideas come from like, you know, from doctors still? Because, you know, we talk about online, but the truth is the online community about diabetes is amazing, but it's a tiny fraction of the people who have type 1 diabetes in the world. And, And like, so when those ideas come from somewhere, do they come from doctors? Do they come from personal fears? Like, you know, do you see it a lot anymore? Do you see people who are a little more emboldened? I would say the latter. I would say definitely people who are much more they're more in search of making a change and making it a beneficial change and what's available and how can I use this? And Hey, did you see this? I mean, I, from the perspective of like a career that there's not a boring piece to it, at least not at this point for me, I am certainly in a place career wise and in a job for what I can do that things keep evolving and changing, even in what I need to teach because technology is changing so much and because we're learning so much more. Um, So, you know, from the standpoint of the people that we typically work with, it's those who are really reaching for more that really do want. It's It's not common that we have somebody call the office and they're coming to us specifically on, like, just injections. Um, and not necessarily that it's bad to be on injections, but those that who are 
still using that as as their management strategy. They're being bold about it. They're they're using it to their advantage. They're not afraid to use it, you know, in the way that they need to, to take 12 injections a day if it means that they're keeping things nice and stable that way. Great. It's it's really odd that we would have somebody come to us and they're still doing what I was doing in 1988. <laughs> but there are people doing that still, right? Yeah. Are, they're just not visible to us. And- I would say they're probably more so in a, I would say more of maybe like a rural type of community that maybe access to things disconnected in any way really they're disconnected right they're already disconnected they haven't had um you know their endo might be an old school type of endo they're not reaching out to like the online type of community that's either not for them to do or they don't know that it's an option to do or they're kind of lost in how to use the information that they see there and there's nobody to guide them in using it so they just they don't make a change um or again you know, people who've been doing something for such a long time and they feel like it's working for them. So they just don't want to change. Why, yeah. why should I make a change? Well, you know, I know um, next weekend, not this coming, but next weekend, I'm going to Oklahoma to give my talk in, in Oklahoma and to, cool. give, to give you a feeling for how true what Jenny just said is, is that when I was initially contacted with Oklahoma from Oklahoma, the message was, Hey, you wouldn't come here. Would you like that feeling like you won't come here? Right. And I thought, like you're from like Milan. Yeah, or I'm, like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, no, yes, I, I would never go to Oklahoma. And like, no, I, I said, no, why? And she's like, well, it's more rural. We don't get as many people. I've seen pictures of some of your talks. You're talking to 600 people. We're only going to get 200, 250 people here. Right. And I to what to that I responded, no, no, no. I think it's more important, or you know, just as important to go where you are. And then I laid out my idea. And I told her, I'm like, my goal with these talks is to just go around the country kind of selectively and start little bonfires of people being bold, you know, teach it to uh, 200 people and maybe it'll stick to 50 of them, you know, and maybe 10 of them will tell somebody else. And maybe 10 years from now, there'll be a community in Oklahoma that spreads out with, with, with that kind of thinking. Like I was like, that's how I see this because- we can't reach the people we can't reach. Not everyone's going to listen to a podcast. Not everyone's on Facebook or Instagram. Honestly, most people aren't. Right. right? You know? And so how do you go find those other people who are thinking, no, this is okay. And and how do you, and it's funny, I'm now talking about one specific person who will hear this and understand that it's them. Uh, someone who found the pod. So there's a person who listens to this podcast. Who listens to it because they were in a diner when someone else saw their pump and basically went up to them and started talking about this podcast with them. And wow. now and now another one of those people is talking to their friends about it. But they've had they had this experience where one of their friends was like, hey, right on. I would love to do better. Show me how. And the other one just isn't interested. Yeah. And then I had to tell that person, I'm like, you can't. You can't internalize that. Like, it's up to them, and you can't. I know you'd realize if they would just make these tiny little changes, that, you know, the improvements they'd see, but you can't do that. I've had to get away from that, and I'm wondering about it for you too. Like, how, because I know it hurts. 
for me, it, it always comes from like reach. I always feel like every person I don't find is another person that doesn't have the opportunity to understand something they didn't understand before. But I wonder what it's like to talk to somebody. Is there ever people who just don't ever get it? And like you've done everything you can do and you just can't figure out how to explain it to them? Or, or do most people see an improvement? It's just the that level of improvement varies from person to person. I, th- I think the level of improvement does vary person to person. Most people, however, at least that we work with, um, tend to see sort of leaps in improvement beyond where they had started, even if they were trying to be more, you know, more aggressive, more bold, more, this is, I'm trying to do this, it's not working, teach me what I'm not quite doing right about this. And they move forward, you know, and make huge improvements. And then there are, I think there's a, a piece there for some people that might be fear-based as well, um, right? Because I I have not many, but um, a couple of like early college age kids, teens, I guess, that I work with who are doing all of their own management and have been for years, but they are there aren't very many things that we can continue to tweak in order to get their averages down because they, they still have that ground level fear of lows from either like one incident of a very significant, severe low blood sugar in which they needed to be helped or whatever, or from whatever was instilled from, you know, a doctor growing up or wherever it came from. But, you know, Stable looking values just running, you know, at like 170 or 180 instead of being down in a, a healthier target range, right? So I think, you know, and, uh, you know, an example too of like ability to have information, sometimes it's a it's community based, like your Oklahoma kind of setting, you know, we're only going to have 200 people. Yeah, but those 200, like you said, they may reach more and more and more, or they might outsource and they might say, you know what, we're not getting what we need in this community, we need more, we need to ask for, you know, additional practitioners to come in who do get it or whatnot. Um, years ago, it was probably about six years ago, I went and I did a, a, a talk at a kids camp in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Mm-hmm very small community. They had this beautiful, small kids camp, um, you know, for kids and family members um, with diabetes. And I did a presentation um, for them and encouraged kind of similar to what you get at. It's like being more aggressive. It's being more bold. It's, It's not having the fear to address things and adjust things. And one of the mothers, you know, in the question part of it, she asked, she's like, but who do we go to then to check up on what we're doing differently? She's like, in our small community here, she said, we, we drive far to get to our one pediatric endo who, and she said, if we don't agree with what he's telling us to do, and she said, many of us don't, she said, then we have to drive as far as Colorado. Wow. To actually or be they'll able take to their be, pump or something like that, or, you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, so there are there are some of those settings where you have to judge and say, okay, well, this is what we can do in the setting that you're in. Yeah. This is how I can teach you 
to do things a little better. And if you can bring information to your doctor, then I think that's the big piece too, is bringing in information that says, this is what I did differently. I know you told me not to adjust, but I did. And look at what it's done. Now that we have the tools today that we didn't have, you know, 30 years ago when I was first diagnosed, we can bring in tools and we can say, hey, I adjusted and look what happened. I'm now more in target or I'm not having these peaks after my meals or I'm in target all night long. I mean, had my mom had just a CGM, I'm sure that she probably would have said, gosh, Jenny doesn't have to get up at six o'clock. She yeah. can push it until eight o'clock or whenever she decides to get up, you right. know, and if she starts to travel down, I will wake her up earlier, you right. know? Um, so. No, yeah. I hear you. I think that as maybe overly simplistic as it sounds, the, our inability to communicate is, is the rate limiting factor. It always is. It's either the doctor's inability to communicate or like you just said, I've done something, it worked. But how do I get that across to the doctor without them being mad at me? Like, right. like how do we talk to people without things escalating? And, right. and a lot of us don't have that skill. Like, right. like, you know what I mean? Like we, like some, and some people are get very emotional. They just come in and they, they right away feel like, like little kids, like you said, or whatever. And, and you just don't say something in the right way. I mean, how many times right. have you had a great intention in your mind and then opened your mouth and 10 minutes later, you're fighting with somebody and all you can think in the back of your head is this isn't, I don't mean to be fighting with you. Like I didn't come here for this. Like, you, you know what I mean? Like I had, I, I, how did I get so far away from my message? Right. And it's just because a lot of us don't communicate well. And, right. and I think that is the basic issue. You know, like if you have something that works, you should be able to say it to a doctor. And, and they, you know, if you have a good doctor, they'll hear you. But what right. if what if they're not a great doctor? Or what if they're full of ego? Or what if, you know, blah, 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 blah. And that's where you have to be able then to just turn into those penguins from Madagascar and just be like, <laughs> just smile and wave, boys. Just smile and wave. <laughs> I tell my son all the time, somebody tries to change your swing, just go, oh, yeah, sure. I'll try it as soon as you walk away. Thank you. Thanks. I appreciate your concern. And yes. then just go right back to what you're doing. And so, you know, and I do think sometimes that has to be it. You you, you have to know who you have and, and know who you're talking to and then, you know, adjust what you're saying. I hate to say it like this, but to get the outcome that you need. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Right. I mean, I've been very, um, once we, when we first moved to the DC area, I met with a doctor with a new insurance plan and whatnot. And I, oh, well, I just needed a prescription. So I needed primary care and I also needed a referral to an endo, right? This primary care didn't even know how to write a prescription for insulin, which in a major metro area really was kind of scary to me. And I left her office and you know, those little surveys you get about your doctor visits, like after you've yeah. been there, <laughs> I filled it out. I don't know whatever came of my survey review of her, but I was like, and she had given me, you know, some referrals to endos and whatnot in the area, which I was very happy for. Cause I was like, I am never, ever going back to this person ever again, even for a simple cold. My gosh, I was so worried like what she was doing for other people. But in terms of it taught me something about like asking ahead had I wanted a primary care doctor who was more knowledgeable about just diabetes in general I could have done some looking around I could have done some asking it's even essentially when I call the office I learned after that calling endo offices for new endos 
how many of your clients are type one? How many of them use a continuous monitor? How many of them use an insulin pump? How much, you know, how often do you see them? Those are just questions that I've learned over the years to ask to actually find a caregiver who's going to be most appropriate for me to start to work with. Um, I mean, I overall, for the majority of the endos that I've worked with, I've sort of just gone into the appointment very boldly being like, this is what I do unless I have some major trauma or whatever. I really need prescriptions from you. And I really need lab work from you. And if you see anything in my data, please say something, <laughs> please say something <laughs> yeah. about it, but also let's discuss it and not just right. say, well, I, you could change here. You yeah. could do this, but why? And right? other than that, just think of my visits as 10 minutes of bathroom break for you. Right. <laughs> just take my $40 copay and we'll shake hands and I'll get out of your hair. Exactly. Yes. It's, huh. it's interesting. Um, so yeah. you need a jiffy lube is what you're saying for doctors. Right. You just want to, you don't ever want <laughs> no, the car to get cold. Just drive in the front, drive out the back and keep going again. That's right. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, some healthcare might go that way eventually with, you know, talking to people online and, I, yep. I, and maintenance stuff like that. It really could end up being like that. Well, we even just got in a card in the mail the other day from our insurance, um, for, um, like teledoc mm -hmm. visits. Like if you've got a cold or the flu or, you know, whatever, and you want to talk with them, you can literally like FaceTime with them for like 10 minutes for like five bucks. <laughs> you can get your visit taken care of without ever leaving the comfort of your nice comfy slippers at home. We did so. something with Arden, one of Arden's doctors recently that was on FaceTime because, and we're going to talk about it in 2020. Uh, Arden's been going through a lot for the last year and a half, and it looks like it's coming to a close now. Um, but it, the one doctor was just like, look, don't drag her all the way over here. Just let's just video Call. chat real quick and we'll get this out of the way. Um, nice. You know, cause she'd, she'd been there enough. So, mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think it's not viable. I really don't. Um, and listen, yeah. doctors, doctors and their family members have been doing it for years over the phone, right? Right. <laughs> they say Absolutely. they don't, but you know, they do. Uh, but they you, do. Yeah, Absolutely. Right. It's kind of almost like returning to old school, like Laura Ingalls Wilder home visits from the doctor. It is. I mean, it's more technologically advanced than that, obviously, and you're not going to pay them with like a chicken or a pie. Right. But you know. listen, I, there, it's just not everything's not feasible. There's no doubt that people will reach out to me, as I'm sure with you. And I think to myself, if I just was where you are, we could have this straight in about 18 hours. But I can't do that. And mm -hmm. so the best I've been able to come up with so far is you should probably listen to these episodes and then these and then go back to the other ones. And I think that in three or six months, if you put the effort into listening, I think you'll get to that place. You'll get somewhere. Right. But yeah. I can't, you know, I just, I can't. I mean, obviously no one can. There's millions of people with diabetes. And I don't think there are as many people who understand how to walk into a scenario right away and go, turn that up, turn that down, do this, do that. Right. This is happening because of that. Um, it's just, it, and it's sad. Like, it makes me feel sad sometimes. So I guess the, I have two last questions for you. Yeah. The first one is... Do you really prefer Jenny or Jennifer? Like, if you could make people call you something, it's Jennifer, right? Honestly, I don't, I don't care. I don't. I don't really mind. I don't. I. I don't really like Jen at all. Just not Jen. Just not Jen. Okay. I don't. But Jennifer, you know, my husband calls me Jennifer. My father-in-law calls me Jennifer. But majority of other people just have always called me Jenny. I've got one aunt who calls me Jenny Claire because my middle name is Claire and she's always lifelong called me Jenny Claire. Mm -hmm. 
But other than that, yeah, I mean, I've always been okay. Jenny. I'm glad so. because I've, over the years, felt like I just strong-armed you into being called Jenny at some point yeah, because no. I didn't understand what you wanted. Um, and then my my very last question, I guess, is do you ever have that feeling that I just described? Like, do you ever think, like, do you just feel bad? Do you ever just think, oh, I could help this person if I could just take them out of the mix for a second? Like, it's a really weird thing to think, but if you just took them out of control for a second, you could just like put this right. It's almost like watching someone do a puzzle who doesn't see the pieces and you're like, Oh my God, get out of the way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. (laughs) But, but do you have that sad feeling or do you feel more hopeful about it? Or like, where do you think my best, I guess my better question is where do you think this is all going for people with diabetes? Like, do you think it's going to keep getting better or do you think there's always going to be this level of, I just need to, do people just want set it and forget it that badly that they don't want to understand it that much, do you think? Or does it vary? I think it varies, honestly. I mean, from my perspective, I'm, I've am i always been like very science, like math kind of oriented thinking, even as a kid, even prior to diabetes. Um, and I always wanted to know like the why. Why is this happening? How do you fix it? What's the, you know, my brother kind of took it to the other side. He's very mechanical. He always, he just took everything apart. He wanted to know why it worked the way it did. And then he could put it back together. And mine was like, what is the body doing? Why is it doing it that way? Why is this happening? You know, and then there are a hundred percent just different personalities. Some people truly just want, and quite honestly, for long-term health, I think really need a set it and forget it. They need a system that is going to just work for them and it's going to dose insulin and hopefully someday the, the insulin, you know, glucagon kind of component altogether, they're going to be able to set it and unless something changes like they need to re-enter their weight or whatever, they need a system that they don't have to do very much with. And I think from the perspective too of many people with diabetes who also might be living with some type of... Um, mental disability, mm-hmm. I think a set it and forget it could be very, it's yeah. very important. It's very advantageous. But then there are people, um, I think parents to my mind sort of come into the picture here. They very much want the tiny microscopic in and out of this management right. they, because they've gotten so used to doing it with so many things change things that change for little kids through the growth time periods. They know things change. They know how to eventually react to it. And it, you know, they're kind of attuned to it. So to take that away, I know from my perspective, when I transitioned into using the system, the pump system that I'm using, it was very hard to take a bit of a step back and let it do its job right. without my thought which had been there for like 20, whatever, 28 years, I guess, before I had started using this. So yeah, it, it, it's hard. Well, I think you and I have a, yeah, a pro tip series in us in 2020. That's going to talk about that. So, hmm. um, we'll get to that pretty soon. Cool. All right. Well, I really appreciate you doing this and being yeah. so open and just talking about yourself. I thought it was really great Absolutely. and uh, happy new year. Happy New Year to you. And too. I'm gonna I'm gonna hang up here and uh, and say one thing to you that I don't want all these people to hear. So hold on okay. one second. Now that's how you start off season six of the Juice Box Podcast. Am I right? Thank you so much, Jenny, for coming on and uh, talking to me differently than you usually do. 
I also want to thank Dexcom and Omnipod for sponsoring this episode of the Juicebox podcast. Please go to Dexcom.com forward slash Juicebox and check out the Dexcom G6 continuous glucose monitor. And then MyOmnipod.com forward slash Juicebox, where in a couple of clicks and keystrokes, you will have an Omnipod demo sent right to your house. Free? Absolutely free. And zero obligation. Just try it. Bring it home, try it on, see what you think. And if you'd like to work with Jenny one-on-one, you can go to integrateddiabetes.com and find her there. There is also a link in the show notes with Jenny's email address. Just send an email like, hey, Jenny, my name is Bill, and I would like to have you help me with my blood sugar. Thank you, Bill. You probably will be more thoughtful in your email. Hey, you know what? If you want to see me and Jenny together, we are going to be together in Georgia on February 29th. You can actually go to the Bold with Insulin Facebook page. Go to the events tab. There you'll see. Let me see what I got coming up. January 5th, St. Peter's Hospital. I think that one might be sold out. January 11th, Type 1 Nation Summit, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. And on February 16th, I'll be at the Greater Dallas Type 1 Nation event. That's in Irving, Texas. That's a Sunday. Oh, uh, and here, Jenny and I will be in Georgia at the Type 1 Nation event on February 29th. I'm doing a Juicebox podcast live with the JDRF in Appleton, Wisconsin on March 26th. That's a Thursday evening. I think it's like a three-hour event. And then on May 30th, Touched by Type 1. That's with, oh, Touched by Type 1 is Dancing for Diabetes. They're going to be a sponsor again this year. So excited. But you'll be able to see me in Orlando, Florida on May 30th. And then I have something set up on August 22nd, 2020, the Type 1 Nation event in Richmond, Virginia. I do not have any details about that yet. And there might be something coming in Indiana. I'm not certain. Anyway, if you want to see me, that's the schedule for now. Bold with Insulin on Facebook. Go to the Events tab. I actually think you can also go to juiceboxpodcast.com. Go to the bottom. Click on Events. You can get that same information. All right, season six of the Juice Box podcast is here. I have a lot to say about this, but I won't say it here. This episode's been very long. I'll do a standalone episode soon for myself where I'll talk about what's coming up, sort of a state of the podcast address. We'll do something like that. Here's what I need from you in 2020. I want you to be bolder. I want you to have a better time of it, an easier time of it, a healthier time of it. I hope the podcast helps you with that. I hope it helps you find community sense of calm, motivation, that all is goes without saying. And then I need you to tell other people about the podcast. So that's your job, right? My job is make the podcast and put it up on the internet, do the editing, all that stuff, get the gas. I'm doing all that, right? And then you tell other people about it. Honestly, the division of labor here seems kind of unequal, but you know, fair is fair. I get the money from the ads and you don't. So, I mean, I guess giving you a job at all is probably a little weird, but not really. You know what? It's not weird. This is free. All I need you to do is tell someone else about it. Grow the podcast. All right. You have your job. I have mine. Let's get to work.